Hello, and welcome to The Quantum Divide. This is the podcast that talks about the literal divide between classical IT and quantum technology, and the fact that these two domains need to become closer together. Quantum networking actually is more futuristic than perhaps the computing element of it, but we're going to try and focus on that domain. But we're bound to experience many different tangents, both in podcast topics and conversation as we go on. Enjoy. All right, welcome to our next episode of the Quantum Divide. Uh, before I introduce our, our guest this week, I'm just going to put Steve on the spot and ask him a question. It's actually a joke. Steve, why do quantum information scientists prefer hamburgers to steaks? Good question. Hamburgers to steak, I'm not sure. It's because the hamburger is already in a ground state. Yeah? yeah. <laughs> What's the favorite video game of Schrodinger's cat? I don't know. <laughs> it's Half-Life, of course. All right. These incredibly awesome dad jokes with the quantum slant actually come from Qera's LinkedIn page. And the reason why I mentioned them is that we've got Yuval Boga with us this week, who is the chief marketing officer for Qera. Welcome, Yuval, and thanks very much for joining us. You've got a, a very interesting background. And as the superposition guy, it's quite an honor to have you on the call here. I think we'll start as we normally do with a bit of a view on your your background, your path into quantum, your path into podcasting. I guess anybody that's listening to this that knows the industry has probably listened to your podcast at some point, which you're welcome to plug at any point. But yeah, so keen to hear about your experience there and, and why you do it. So it's a pleasure to be here and not be here at the same time. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my name is Yuval, I'm Chief Marketing Officer of Quera. And I, my entire life I've been uh, working on deep tech, startup companies, anywhere from seed stage all the way to NASDAQ. By education, I have a master's in physics and an MBA from uh, Northwestern Kellogg. And I've done many different things, enterprise software, wireless power, virtual reality, agriculture technology. And then a couple of years ago, I decided that it would be a good time to get into quantum computing. For a couple of years, I was chief marketing officer of Classic, which is a software company in the quantum space. And now I've crossed over to the dark side, to Quera. We are the leader in neutral atom quantum computers. And to your question about podcasts, I found that a fantastic way. Uh, I, this is not my first podcast. I'm doing the Superposition Guy podcast these days. I used to do the Cupid Guys podcast with Classic. But even in other industries, I was the VR guy when uh, doing virtual reality and the charge guy when doing wireless charging and so on. It's a fantastic way for me to both learn, talking with all these smart people, and it's also been a fantastic business development tool. Once the microphone is off, you can talk about other things beyond the podcast, and it uh, was a very good way for me to network into the industry. So, uh, we were uh, curious about the different names. So you had Superposition Guy, Qubit Guy, Charge Guy. We're thinking, what's... Now it's clear why there are so many different names, because it's, I guess every time you switch Positions used to have a new name <laughs> for your podcast. That's great. Absolutely. And uh, that, that used to be the, the litmus test for is an industry young enough because in virtual reality, for instance, when I saw that VR guy was available, I said, okay, this is a young enough industry. And when the Qubit guy was available, I said, oh, quantum is a young enough industry as well. And so this fits what I love to do. Yeah, that's great. So I think when it comes to the quantum part, the quantum podcast, you've had many episodes so one thing we're curious about, is there something you noticed across these episodes 
that's something in common or something vastly different between them? What kind of trends have you observed with people who work in quantum that you've interviewed? I think you have to be an optimist to work in quantum because the dark secret is that quantum computers are almost useless today. Other than a few esoteric applications, there's nothing you can do on a quantum computer that you cannot do classically. So you have to be an optimist saying, yeah, that's right. It's now, but in two years or three years and five years, just wait and see all these amazing things. And it does make sense. You got to walk before you run and crawl before you walk. So we're somewhere between crawling and walking in quantum right now. So I think most of my guests have been very optimistic about where the industry is going. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be here. Yeah, it makes sense. So in this position of being risky, but promising, and I can see that perspective, you need to be optimistic. You have to believe in hard problems can be solved. Okay, yeah. So then again, towards the trends of the the podcast, I guess since since you started, things have maybe have changed with perspectives and what people are focused on and what people believe in. Have you noticed a shift in, for example, what people focus on the research or have companies pivoted since you first interviewed them and now they're changed? Have you noticed something changing in the industry throughout the time of interviewing your guests? Absolutely. So the industry does move in a fantastic pace. The number of qubits that are available out there, the variety in the modality of the machines is something that was unimaginable three or five years ago. One thing that I found surprising, but is a very sort of prominent thing that's happening, is the move towards on-premises quantum computers. If you ask people three years ago, would someone need an on-premises quantum computer? I think the answer would have been almost universally no. And the reason is quantum computing moves very quickly. Some people say, by the time I buy and get delivered quantum computer, is it going to be obsolete? What's the useful life of the quantum computer? A cloud lets me experiment with all these quantum modalities relatively inexpensively. So there are a lot of things going for cloud-based quantum computing. But then again, people want on-premises. So we started exploring why that's the case. One reason is the emergence of national quantum programs. So a lot of countries around the world are starting in-country quantum programs, whether because they believe it's the next big thing. And some of these countries feel that maybe they've missed the internet or maybe they've missed the AI wave and they don't want to miss quantum. So they're investing millions and sometimes billions of dollars in creating a local quantum ecosystem. And for them, having quantum computers in-country is an important seed in creating that ecosystem. If I'm in Denmark, then it's probably not good enough for me to have a quantum computer in Boston, Massachusetts, where Carrera is, I want it in Denmark, I want it in country. So that's one reason that's happening. The other reason that's happening is as quantum computers become more useful, people want more control over who uses the computer, how soon, and the priorities. Because if you go to a cloud service, you may be hours or sometimes days behind some other large jobs that are in the queue. But if quantum is becoming mission critical for you, then you say, no, I want to run my job now and I'll set the priorities. And oh, by the way, I want the computer to run 20 hours a day and not seven. And so having that control sometimes leads people to the on-premises. And then there's always the defense contractors or other people that feel like they need an air gap system, that they just don't want to send their uh, code over the internet and uh, want an on-premises for that. So that's been a major shift 
that uh, we've observed over the last uh, six to 12 months. Thanks, Yuval. And I guess sovereignty is very important. We're in, in a macro environment where globalization is diminishing a little bit and all of those kind of drivers supporting that, that uh, paradigm you've just described. I guess let's go on to your day job, shall we? So g- give us a bit of info about Qera. I understand it's a neutral atom architecture, but I guess I'm interested to know about the company. Why neutral atom? And yeah, we can go on to some more technical questions after that. Absolutely. So there are various modalities, various methods of building quantum computers. Some people use superconducting qubits. Some people may use photonics or others uh, use trapped ions and so on. And we use neutral atoms. So neutral atoms, in our case, we use uh, rubidium 87. So rubidium is on the left side of the periodic table, uh, a couple of rows, a few rows uh, below hydrogen. And uh, rubidium is uh, very interesting. I mean, in general, when, you, in, when your qubits are atoms, there's no shortage of them. You can make as many as you want. They're all identical. There are no manufacturing defects or inconsistencies. They're very small uh, because they're neutral. They're less susceptible to environmental charges or other things that are happening around them. So Quera started about four years ago. It's an outgrowth of uh, amazing work that was done at uh, Harvard and MIT. Um, Harvard and MIT built many years ago the first, I think at the time was the largest computer in the world, 51 qubits. And then Quera was started to commercialize this and, of course, add our own discoveries. We believe neutral atoms are, is the right approach. Of course, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. We think that neutral atoms are scalable, meaning as you go to larger and larger number of qubits, other modalities require optical interconnects or other sort of ways to distribute the qubits. And with uh, Quera, we believe that we can get to at least 10,000 qubits without needing an interconnect. As we speak, and actually since November of 22, we've got the largest publicly accessible computer, a 256 qubit machine that's available on the Amazon bracket. We are the only neutral atom vendor that has a computer that's publicly accessible. Part of that is due to the ingenuity of the Quera scientists and part of that because of the amazing work that was done and continues to be done at MIT and Harvard and our collaborators. Another advantage of neutral atoms is that you can move them around. Um, Basically, uh, we can get into how we do computations, but the atoms themselves are suspended by uh, thin laser beams. They're suspended about four microns apart. That's four millions of a meter, um, sort of science fiction at its best. And by moving the laser beams, you can move the atoms around. And what that means is that you can have what we call any-to-any connectivity. You can get any qubit to interact with any qubit, any other qubit directly. Now, why is this important? Imagine that I'm at a cocktail party and you see me next to the punch punch bowl, my usual spot, and I spot someone at the other side of the room and I want to go to speak to that person. So I just go over and we chat and we exchange information. Now, if I was glued to the floor and I wanted to speak with someone at the other side of the room, I would have to pass the message to the person next to me and then next to that person and so on. And maybe play telegraph and maybe 12 people down the, some message would get to the other side. It would take more time. It's much more prone to errors. That's the difference between neutral atoms where you can move the qubits around to talk with any other qubits and say superconducting 
where the connectivity is fixed, where every qubit can speak with, say, four other qubits. So we can create more efficient programs, and we can create some amazing things that we believe are not possible, or at least very hard, with other modalities. Excellent. Thanks. So my understanding is that the, the atoms of rubidium are suspended as a gas. Is that right? And the lasers create a, a lattice, some kind of these atoms. And then that's what you perform the computation on top of. Is, is that a good description? Yes. We take rubidium atoms, we trap them in these laser beams. The laser beams, sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. The laser beams cool down the atoms to very close to absolute zero. When people, lay people, think about laser beams hitting stuff, that's usually about, oh, they're heating it up. They're actually going to make it warmer. In this case, there's a direct relationship between the temperature and how quickly an atom moves. So when an atom is trapped, it's essentially considered at very low temperature. And the way these work, what we call laser tweezers or optical tweezers, is when an atom starts moving in the wrong direction, the photons in the laser actually push it back. The laser is tuned to push it back. It's almost like the Doppler effect. And so the laser beams are able to trap the atoms in place. And then this array of laser beam, one for each qubit, we can arrange them in different ways. Now, today, we use two energy levels for each atom. We can think about them as zero and one, or sometimes they're called the ground state, back to your joke from earlier, and the Rydberg state. A Rydberg state is a state where one of the electrons in the rubidium atom is excited to a high energy, high energy state. And when excited, that atom appears to be thousands of times larger than when it is in the ground state, in the low energy state. And the reason that's important is if you take two atoms, if, if they're far apart, they can both be at zero or one, both be ground and Rydberg, and they don't interact with each other. But if you get them close enough, then there's this thing that kicks in called the Rydberg blockade, and the Rydberg blockade prevents one atom to be in the uh, Rydberg state when the other one is. So all of a sudden, you have a situation where zero, zero is allowed, and zero, one is allowed, and one, zero is allowed, but not one, one. So that's the a simplistic explanation of how you could do a XOR gate uh, with uh, Rydberg atoms. So by arranging the atoms around so that we know which atoms, which qubits are interacting with which, and then exciting them, moving them up to the Rydberg state in some fashion, we can create computations, both what we call analog mode computations, as well as what uh, people usually refer to as universal digital gate-based computations. It's fascinating and quite sci-fi, as, as you described. Neutral atoms, they've really, from what I can tell, come on accelerated in their kind of purpose in relative years. I only just listened to another podcast, and I don't mind uh, pimping somebody else's podcast on mine, but the new quantum era with Sebastian Hassinger and Kevin Rowney, they just interviewed the chief strategy uh, officer of inflection, and he was talking about neutral atoms for sensing primarily the sensors to, to measure changes in the environment and so on. And I guess the big benefit is that they can run at room temperature. The, obviously, the applications and use cases are significantly broader. Is it, do your computers run at room temperature as well, or uh, is there a fridge inside, inside your systems? 
they absolutely run at room temperature. And, and by the way, the previous podcast that Sebastian Hassinger did was with uh, Alex Kiesling, the CEO of Quera. So he was talking about neutral atoms, of course. Fantastic. There you go. Yeah. So yes, we run at room temperature. We do not need cryogenic uh, coolers, which is sometimes amazing. On one hand, it deprives us from the sort of uh, iconic look of the quantum computer, the golden chandelier. But on the other hand, the fact that we don't need cryogenic cooling means that it's easier to scale and it's also easier to deploy. When we go and look at HPC, at high performance computing centers, and they say, oh, do we need a big room for your fridge and so on? So no, you actually don't. Our computer today takes about four 19 inch racks, consume about, consumes about seven kilowatts of power. That's three hair dryers. Doesn't require any special cooling just requires sort of a normal HPC room temperature, you know, air condition, no condensing humidity, the things you'd expect electronic equipment to work in. And that's it. So it's really simple to deploy. And of course, we save a lot of money by not needing a dilution fridge and save a host of uh, other issues. Yeah, my understanding is that the technology in the dilution fridges is, is come on so well that they're actually very easy to implement, but you still have to have one, right? And in that case, you are cutting back the applicability of the technology in certain domains. Just one more thing on neutral atoms. Are there any unique error correction techniques which are used in when you have a lattice of atoms controlled by lasers? I guess it's a very delicate process and, and balance that has to sit in the system. Neutral error correction is actually, of course, it's very important. That's sort of part of the path of the future to truly usable quantum computers. And we believe that neutral atoms have some unique advantages. One thing that with an error correction code, you usually want to spread it over a larger distance. And so the fact that you can move atoms around is great because you can say, I'm going to entangle them, I'm going to encode them, and then spread them around as I want geometrically. The other thing if you can imagine a logical qubit, error-corrected qubit that's made of a couple dozen or a couple of hundreds of physical qubits, you can move them around each logical qubit, you can move them simultaneously, and then perform operations on all the physical qubits at the same time. So that's also great. The other thing, just recently, there was a paper published by Harvard and Quera and a couple of other institutions showing that the ability to move qubits around leads to more efficient error correction codes. So this is QLDPC, and they basically said, by moving the atoms around, we need fewer qubits. And that's a big deal, because if you have a system with 5,000 qubits, and you need a 500 to 1 physical to logical ratio, then from 5,000 qubits, you get to 10 qubits. However, if you only need, say, 50 qubits, you get to 100 logical qubits with the same number of physical qubits. These efficient error correction codes are truly important, and we believe they're a key factor, key advantage of neutral atoms. Related to that, think about it this way. When you think about classical computer architecture, you have a memory and you have a CPU where you have registers that you can perform operations on and then input and output. By moving qubits around, we can create something similar in a quantum architecture. So imagine that we had three zones. We had a memory zone where the qubits have a very long lifetime, perhaps multiple seconds. We have a processing zone where we can bring qubits from the memory zone, 
perform operations on them. And then we have a measurement zone, which allows us to do mid-circuit measurement, which is important for error correction and, and other things as well. The fact that you can arrange a processing zone that's separate from the other zone also helps with scalability. Because today, in a superconducting architecture, for instance, I believe that every qubit gets three wires, three control signals. So if you need 10,000 qubits, you're going to have 30,000 control signals, three signals for each qubit. But if you have an architecture where you just move qubits into an area where you do processing and then control them, then you don't need to scale the same way. You can scale much easier with much, much fewer controls. Think about the absurdity of, for instance, if you opened your uh, 4K television and you found three wires going to every pixel. <laughs> that's going to be uh, a lot of wires and that's going to be a very bulky TV if it could be made at all. So the ability to multiplex, the ability to scale up the number of qubits without significantly scaling up the control signals is a, another key advantage of neutral atoms. So we talked a lot about the advantages of the neutral atoms. Would you say there's any specific disadvantage that is faced only in neutral atom to architecture? Of course, no technology is perfect. So one disadvantage of neutral atoms is speed. And what I mean by that is for a neutral atom computation cycle to happen, what, what is basically happening, you get all these rubidium atoms, you arrange them in any way you want, you do the actual operation, you excite them, and then you take a photograph or a video of them with a camera and you process the image. Now, the middle part, the execution, is really just a few microseconds. But setting up and then image acquisition and image processing could take milliseconds. And therefore, neutral atom quantum computers might be limited today to just a few cycles per second. I mean, I'm sure it will improve in the future, but it's not going to improve a thousandfold in the future. Whereas superconducting qubits can do many more shots per second. So if you've got an operation that needs millions and millions of shots, then from a shot, from an execution type perspective, you're probably better off using some other technology. Now, it may be more noisy. You may, you may or may not get the results you want, but at least it's going to operate faster. So that's one disadvantage of neutral atoms. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. So a little bit of a deviation here. So we, we briefly touched on high-performance computing, which leads to the question of, Okay, we know some applications of quantum computing could be in quantum simulation and quantum chemistry, but are there any applications you see that kind of merge HPC and quantum computing that are maybe inside the scope or outside the scope that maybe aren't as popular as those applications? I, I think it's, you mentioned, we were talking about trends in the market, and I think more and more people realize that it's unlikely that the quantum computer will be a standalone quantum computer not connected to any classical CPU or a GPU, a graphic processing unit. There are many reasons for that. One is just input-output. Quantum computers are not very good in I.O. It's unlikely that we would ever run uh, Zoom on a quantum computer. So you certainly need classical part. But then, unless you're a purist, you're basically saying, okay, I've got a CPU, I've got a GPU, and I've got a QPU. Let's divide up the algorithm in a way that each machine does what it's doing best. So 
a GPU maybe is going to run on the machine learning tasks or uh, certainly image processing. A classical CPU may do input-output or, again, Microsoft Word. I don't think it runs on a GPU today. It doesn't need to. In a QPU, we do something else. So we see a lot of these hybrid algorithms that basically cycle back between a quantum portion that does something and then a classical portion that measures the results, adjusts some parameters, and takes it back. So I think there'll be, I, I would venture a guess that most algorithms would not be pure quantum algorithms, but they would run on some combination of classical and quantum. Do you see that as the way that quantum computers will make the biggest impact and will be able to scale with the size of the problem? Or how do you see that? I don't know if it's so much the way to scaling, but rather the way to usefulness. People have built data centers. They've got lots of compute power there. They've got lots of storage where they could store the data. Now, if they want to take part of the data and process it using a quantum computer, it's going to end up being a hybrid. If they want to communicate that, it's likely going to be classical. If they want to build off work that they've done in GPUs, that's going to remain there. So we see it as a path to usefulness. And indeed, when we speak with HPC centers today, a lot of them come up and say, we, on, we want your quantum computer to be HPC ready, which means it could interface with classical computers, which means that even from a management perspective, security, authorization, billing, job scheduling, synchronization, orchestration, all of these things, they are understood today in the classical world. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We want the quantum computer to fit into that kind of existing infrastructure. And do you think that it will be necessary to connect those quantum computers via quantum network, or will it only require classical interfacing between them? I think that in many cases, classical interfacing will be sufficient. And actually, when we spoke about error correction and about camera readouts and all these things, sometimes it can be very useful to have a GPU that's really tightly coupled, very close microsecond latency with the quantum computer. Not because it needs to run some hybrid algorithm, but because that GPU can help shape the pulses or optimize the quantum computer or help with error correction or help with image processing. And so we're actually seeing classical uh, processors come closer and closer to the quantum core. Um, quantum networking might be useful if you want distributed quantum computing, but in a data center that's co-located, I think that might not be, that might be an overkill. So I get the feeling then that perhaps distributed quantum computing is not something that Queer is looking at. Is that right? That you're keeping all of the compute power within one system because you, perhaps it's an easier system to scale than maybe a broad statement that uh, you're welcome to shoot down. But because <laughs> that lattice, essentially you're planning to grow that rather than look at distributed quantum computing at some point. We're just early in the market. When you look at a classical supercomputer that's made of hundreds or sometimes thousands of CPUs and GPUs, but each of them is powerful in its own right. So right now we're in the process, of let's develop that individual unit before we start connecting them all together. The distributed quantum computer can certainly 
you can think about it as, oh, I've got five quantum computers in different cities, and if I could network them and get them to run some coherent algorithm, then maybe I could um, exponentially increase the power. But we're just not there yet in terms of we just need to develop the individual Lego block before we build the full castle. Great. Yeah. One step at a time, Dan. <laughs> Slow down now. Okay, I actually had one more uh, question. I'm sorry, it's, it's taking a step back, but when we were talking about the the lasers or essentially the photonic beams, if you like, which are holding the atoms in place, is it those same lasers which carry the signal to, as you put it, excite the atoms and position them in such a way that the computation can happen? Or are they, is, is it happening with separate lasers? So you've got multiple things going on. You've got lasers that hold the atoms in place. You've got lasers or other electromagnetic signals that can uh, move the atom from uh, the ground state to the uh, excited state. You have other signals that cause them to interact this way or the other. So it's a complex system. It's not just one wavelength or it's not just one excitation. All right. Thanks. And hey, I'm the IT guy on this call, so I get to ask the stupid questions. I'm this the marketing guy. I get to answer the <laughs> stupid answers, right? <laughs> yeah. And we make a good team then, you are. So you mentioned logical and physical qubits. I don't have that straight in my head on how that works. How does the mapping work inside your, your system for that? Is there a set of mathematics which results in the way the qubits are interoperating you, you send a signal to multiple qubits and you get the result from one? Or how does, let's, set, let's just say, 10 qubits provide the function of one logical qubit? That's an excellent question. And in fact, I just published, or the Quantum Insider was kind enough to publish a, a pretty long article that I wrote about error correction and why it's needed and what the state of the art is and so on. But Let's start from the beginning. Error correction is needed because qubits are fragile. And even with today, the state of the art for two qubit operations, taking two qubits and doing something with them is, let's say, 99.8%. That sounds like a lot, but it basically means that two, out of, two times out of 1,000, the result would be incorrect. So if you've got an operation that has a couple of hundred of these two qubit operations sequentially, then you're more likely to get junk at the end of that than a true result. In contrast, a classical computer, the error rate may be 1 over 10 to the power of 20 or something like that. Orders and orders of magnitude different. Logical qubits are, is some scheme to basically say, let's take multiple physical qubits and see if we can create a qubit that's resistant to error that I, we could detect and correct errors. Now, if we were doing this classically, so if we were recording, I needed to give you my credit card number, and we were on a really noisy phone li line, maybe I would repeat every digit a few times. So if, the, if my credit card starts by 4162, maybe I say 444111 or 444666111222. And I, I sent you every digit three times, so hopefully, if one of them is misheard, you can say, oh, yeah, I, I know how to de detect that there was an error here and correct it. And if the line was even more noisy, maybe I do every one five times or nine times or something like that. So at some point, depending on how resistant I want 
the code to be to noise, I can repeat the number of digits. And of course, in classically, you can do smarter things. Unfortunately, in quantum computing, you cannot replicate a qubit. There's a law of physics that's called the no cloning theorem. You cannot take a qubit and just make copies of it. That's, it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, oh, it's really bad. I wish I could because that, then for error correction, that would be great. On the other hand, when people talk about secure quantum communications, then the fact that you cannot clone a qubit leads to that resistance to tapping, to wiretapping, right? Because if someone were to listen in and try to copy the qubit that's running on the link, I would know, I would find out. So that sort of gives the resistance. Quantum computing had to come up with different codes on how to encode qubits. And the size of that code, the number of physical qubits that make up one logical qubit, depends again on how resistant you want that to be to error. So the uh, people talk about what's called code distances. How many errors can you detect and correct? And the larger the code distance, the more physical qubits you need for a logical qubit. Now imagine very simplistically that if a logical qubit had five physical qubits, I wish that was the case, but that's usually a higher number, then I could take these five physical qubits, perform an operation on these five pairs, one qubit from each logical qubit, and then see what happens, correct the errors, and move on to on and on. So that's basically what people are trying to do. They're looking at different codes. How do I encode information in a way that's resistant to errors that I can correct it? How do I do that efficiently? But the ultimate goal is to reach a situation where yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on underneath, but at the end of the day, you trust the calculations and you can do sophisticated calculations with many operations without worrying about quantum errors. Thank you for that, for that detail. It's be, the, way, the way I see it now then is that it's because it's a probabilistic system. It's not deterministic like a classical computer. So if you have lots of errors, you're going to get, that's going to affect your end probabilistic state. So the more qubits you can perform the calculations on, then the higher chances that the probabilistic state is going to be more accurate. That's one way to look at it. Uh, but yes, you're basically trying to create a mechanism to create and correct errors. Otherwise, uh, you're not going to get to useful quantum computing. Right. Okay, and I've got the first few digits. If you could just give me the rest of your credit card number, that would be good as, as well. Absolutely. And of course, I'll put a link into the uh, into the show notes for your article. I'm happy to do that. And the credit card, right? So because yeah. I, no, I'll keep that to myself. That's fine. All right. Then the next topics are more on the. We talked about the hardware. Talked about the error correction. Talked about how to perform quantum computing. And now the question, of course, is what's going to be the thing we do with the quantum computers? What's the application of the quantum computers? So one question is, what's the application you think is the the most promising right now? And so one thing I'm curious about is particularly quantum machine learning. Where do you see the, the application that will make the, the first impact, let's say? Maybe not the biggest impact, but the first impact. Today, we see three classes of applications that people run on our quantum computer. Um, simulation, optimization, and machine learning. So simulation that goes back to Richard Feynman that basically said the best way to simulate a 
quantum system is to run it on a quantum computer. So if you have a system with quantum mechanical effects, then it's sometimes much easier to experiment on a quantum computer doing that. So even with our system today, we think that 256 qubits is a lot today in 2023, but in, in 10 years, it will be nothing. It's going to be a 4K RAM equivalent. Um, but we are seeing scientists that are able to simulate and measure effects that were previously predicted theoretically, but not observed. So sort of unique states of matter, for instance, or things, for instance, there's a topic called spin liquids. And so a lot of amazing things that people can simulate on our existing computer. The second topic is optimization. And optimization is really a universal problem. Everyone wants to optimize something, right? FedEx wants to optimize the routes of their drivers. Fidelity wants to optimize the portfolio. A telecom wants to optimize the placement of the 5G cell towers. Um, so we see a lot of optimization work. And one of the interesting things about the way our quantum computer works is that we spoke about the ability to move qubits and to place qubits in various locations. We can encode some of the constraints in optimization by moving the qubits to the right place, by the geometry of the qubits. So every optimization or most optimizations have constraints, right? I, I want to optimize a portfolio, but I've, I'm constrained in how much money I can spend on the stocks, right? I have to, the, the value of the stocks needs to be, I don't know, $1,000. So one example that we show on our website is a store placement example. Or you can think about it as a, let's say an example of ATM, cash withdrawal machines. So you're a bank, you want to place ATMs, you want to place them in areas that people want to take out cash, but you don't want to place two ATMs super close to each other because then you're serving the same client base and you just put two machines, whereas one would be enough. So we've solved a couple of these problems for our customers and they basically say, well, here are all these candidate locations that we can put the ATMs or put the stores. Here are the constraints that we don't want this, these and these stores to be too close to each other. And then we run it through the quantum computer and through that Rydberg blockade mechanism, the fact that the system does not allow two atoms to be in the high state, in the Rydberg state simultaneously, think about it as I cannot place two stores in these two locations. We can solve a lot of optimization problems, perhaps better than uh, other machines. And the third area, as you mentioned, is quantum machine learning. And quantum machine learning usually has two parts. One is classification, right? I've got images, dog or cat, or you could certainly do something much more sophisticated. Or you have prediction where you say, this was the water consumption in a certain city over the last uh, two weeks. And what do we expect the water consumption to be tomorrow at uh, 8 a.m.? So take historical data and extrapolate it into the future. Initial uh, attempts at this were to take classical algorithms and just run them on quantum. And that's proven to be very difficult because quantum computers are noisy, meaning they're not precise in their measurement. So either you have to run many measurements or you get results that are not fully accurate. And so the process of teaching a network 
of training it was very difficult when you used classical algorithms and try to just implement them on quantum computers. Uh, fortunately, there are other approaches. One of them that we like is called uh, quantum reservoir computing. And reservoir computing is pretty cool. It's basically saying I've got inputs, I encode them somehow, and I then use these inputs to excite a reservoir of something. Think about it as I can drop stones into a pond, and let's say the location of where I drop the stones is relating to my input, and then I measure ripples on the pond in some other location. And the pond, because this body of water where you've got all these interactions going on that I may or may not understand, creates some connection between the input, what I, the stones that I threw, and the output. And it turns out that you can do this with a quantum system, run training through it, look at the outputs, use classical training to match the outputs of the pond with what you're trying to determine, and you're actually getting very good results. We were getting that in smart factories, we're getting that in handwritten digit recognition, we're getting that in extrapolating time series to the future. So there have been some really exciting work that's happening in quantum machine learning, not running chat GPT on quantum anytime soon, quad GPT, but a uh, different set of problems that uh, are showing promise. So you think th the direction of taking the classical input, converting it to a quantum state or encoding it into quantum states, this will be too challenging for the near future, or at least maybe forever. What, what do you think? I think that quantum brings new capabilities and you have to think about problems differently. If you just try to take a problem that you solved one way and force feed it into a new type of computer, just like when you started using GPUs, you could think about parallel processing and you can think about what each pixel or each core, each core can do and not just think about a program that runs sequentially like a classical CPU. So once you started thinking in parallel for GPUs, you could do some amazing things. Once you start thinking about superposition and entanglement and interference in quantum, that's where some really cool stuff is going to come out. It's a totally new paradigm, isn't it? And that's the thing. When new paradigms come about, you don't really know what the final kind of value is that you're going to get from different use cases. Of course, we see a lot of them and you covered a lot on this call. So thank you for that. It's a really interesting, broad discussion. And I think probably a good time to, to wrap up, Yuval. So listen, thank, thanks so much for talking to us. Is there anything else you'd like to close it off with? Any closing comments or uh, thoughts? Well, we're in the beginning of a journey. It's a truly exciting one. And there's room for everyone. If you're a physicist, if you're a computer scientist, if you're an engineer that's just like to take prototypes and bring them to production. So it's not handcrafted quantum computers, but a production line. If you're thinking about, if you're a computer science major that wants to design new algorithms to take advantage of these amazing capabilities, or maybe if you're just a technician that's gonna keep the machine running at a peak performance, there's room for everyone. It's an industry that's very open and friendly. And I encourage everyone to get involved. And of course, we believe in neutral atoms, so check us out at quera.com. But whichever modality you choose, we, we hope to see you in the Hilbert space, in the quantum space, uh, very soon. Of course. And you don't need a quantum background to go into quantum. 
think that's the other thing, right? Of course, when you finish listening to this episode, perhaps now you could go look on your podcast client and look for the superposition guy and hit subscribe. I'm sure you would love that too. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you guys. Thanks a lot. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain, especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. And I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word, it would really help us out.